Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Buried in Plain Sight. A Parent's Worst Nightmare Their child vanishes on the way to catch the bus to school. Did they run away? Were they abducted by a stranger? Or were they taken by someone they knew and trusted? In 2002, 13-year-old classmates Ashley Pond and Miranda Gaddis both vanished on their way to school, two months apart. Soon, a task force of over 40 police and FBI agents and the entire community of Oregon City were frantically searching for the missing girls. Jim Redden and Janine Robin Reporters for the newly established Portland Tribune reported on the case and worked tirelessly to help solve the crime. I'm going to let them tell you the story of what I call Buried in Plain Sight. I hadn't been a reporter for a couple of decades, and uh, it was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. They were starting the Portland Tribune, and they hired me, so I did that. And and so there's this very weird circumstance where um, these girls disappeared <clears throat> in 2002, and if I had stayed at the Clackamas DA's office for decades, I would have expected to be on the task force that was investigating their disappearances because that was the kind of work I specialized in. Instead, I ended up being a reporter covering the same case in the county I'd worked in before. Uh, The head of the FBI was in our office to discuss something else. They had a meeting I wasn't at. And the head of the FBI said, we really, we really don't know um, the solution to this case. And so they, the Tribune assigned Jim to it. Jim is a superb investigative reporter. And somehow I ended up helping him. Well, Ashley Pond disappeared on January 9th, 2002. Not much media coverage about it. The Tribune wasn't covered, covering it at all. Our motto was close to home. And uh, this was happening out in Clackamas County. So I don't know if that's why we weren't covering it. And then um, Miranda disappeared two months later. And um, that's when the Tribune reporter that I replaced because she left for grad school started covering it a little bit, but really not very much. Um, we, we just were not devoting any resources to it at all until the FBI um, meeting, which was about some other subject. Uh, and the FBI, head of the FBI, told, told Jim and the editors that they really didn't know where to go on the case. And during the, that meeting, um, 
you know, he said that the FBI really and truly needs the public's help to uh, solve this case and gave us the impression that uh, they did not have um, a suspect in mind. Um, and that kind of surprised me because I, I guess I sort of assumed that uh, the police and the FBI probably had some idea about what was going on. It turns out they did, but he gave us the impression um, at that meeting that they didn't. And uh, so after the uh, meeting ended, my editor turned to me and said, I, I want to assign you to this case. And so I said, fine. I was able to wrap up my project by then and set about to report on it. My approach was to solve the crime. It wasn't simply to tell the public that they need to uh, contact the police with information that's already been done. Uh, my idea of helping was to figure out who did it. And then, so then Jim started working on it pretty aggressively. And somewhere in there, I started working with him. From then on, I worked on it pretty much full time until the girls' bodies were found in August of 2002. For a long while, the authorities had no real suspects until Linda O'Neill, author, private detective, and friend of Lori Pond, Ashley's mother, developed information that she shared with Jim Redden, which definitely shifted the investigation into overdrive. I was speaking at a conference of, I think it was um, investigators for public defenders. My brother was a public defender at the time and invited me to be part of this conference, um, you know, talking about how the press interacts with um, lawyers and investigators and things like that. And after I finished talking, uh, Linda O'Neill was in the audience and she came up and introduced herself to me and said that um, because, because of the stories that I had done, which were the most realistic stories that had been done so far, she wanted to share information with me because she had, she was involved in trying to help the Pond family uh, understand what had happened to Ashley. And she asked me if I had heard of Ward Weaver. And up until that point, I had not. There were no uh, police reports on him that I had found. Nobody had mentioned his name. Uh, I didn't know who he was. Uh, but she, Linda told me that that is who Lori thought had done it. Um, because Ashley had accused him, Ward, of molesting her and that the police had been involved in looking at it, uh, but nothing had happened. But apparently it was Lori's suspicion that uh, Ward had a reason to retaliate against uh, Ashley, and that would be the motivation for doing that. And so one Sunday, um, when I, ra I wrapped up stuff in the office really early, and, uh, and, and that time we were in downtown Portland, and drove to Oregon City and went to Ward Weaver's house and knocked on the door. And he came to the door 
and I introduced myself and told him I was a reporter for the Portland Tribune looking into the disappearance of the, the two girls. And I had heard that um, he was, was uh, friends with or close to or involved, I can't remember exactly, with the Pond family. And I wanted to know if he knew anything or could tell me anything or could give me any leads. And he invited me inside and we sat down and um, he admitted that he was the prime suspect in the case and uh, confirmed that Ashley had accused him of molesting her and that that is one was one reason why he was under suspicion. Um, the, another was that his father was a serial killer on death row in California. To elaborate, Linda had uncovered information that in 1981, Weaver's father, Ward Weaver II, murdered a young couple whose car had broken down and buried them in his backyard. It has been reported that his son was visiting him at the time and may have helped in the disposal of the bodies under a concrete slab. And... Uh he believed that his phone was tapped. Uh, he believed that the police were watching him. Uh, he denied being, he denied doing anything with either girl, uh, but did tell me that Ashley had lived in his house for a period of time in the past. Um, so there, you know, there was a, there was a genuine relationship there. Um, um, he said he, he knew that I was going to, write about it um and the only thing he asked is that i not mention anything about his father in the story and i agreed to that uh this was this was sunday i had to go back to the office and write the story immediately in order to get it in the next issue of the paper i wasn't going to have the time to try and track down anything about his father you know this is 2002 and the internet is not what it is today so I couldn't just go online and look up Ward Weaver Sr., or the second, actually. Um, so, I, so I agreed to that. Um, went out and got in my car. Uh, when I was about a block away from his house, I looked in my rear view mirror, and there was an Oregon City police car right on my rear bumper, and it followed me all the way out of town. And that... I took that as confirmation that, that Weaver really was being watched and that they were trying to figure out who I was and why I was visiting the house. So I went, in, went into the office and wrote the story, and it was published in about two days. It was published in about two days, generated a lot of attention, a lot of coverage. You know, other reporters went out and visited Weaver, and it all kind of the FBI continued to believe it was not someone in the area, but both girls were abducted by a stranger. Reporter Janine Robin strongly disagrees. It was not a stranger danger case. The um, People magazine had done a cover story on it the first week of June before Jim did the, the Ward Weaver interview, and it, it's very stranger danger, and a lot of that Direction was driven by the FBI, quotes from the FBI, two, two girls, same place, um, same time, identical circumstances, 
this guy has done it before. He's a serial killer. He's a stranger, blah, blah, blah. And that just was not my experience. I worked cases against kids um, full time for seven years. And all that time, I had only had two kids who had been assaulted by strangers. All of the rest were assaulted by people they knew and trusted or their, their parents knew and trusted. And so I'm looking at that, this, this history of stranger danger just does not happen very often. And I'm coupling that with the fact that Ward Weaver lives directly behind the girl's bus stop. And he has a prior conviction for assault against a teenage girl. And of course, the, the amorphous thing that his dad is a self-confessed serial killer, which it's hard to quantify why that was important, but that was important. And the fourth thing was that Jim found out that Ashley had previously accused him of sexually assaulting her. Ward's relationship with Ashley was pretty established. I mean, she had lived at his house for a while. Uh, she had accused him of molesting her. She had to walk right past his house to get to the bus stop. Um, but still, it's, it's not really clear how he uh, abducted her, whether he lured her into the house that morning or whether he came out and offered her a ride to school or something like that. I mean, he's never, he's never actually confessed. Um, we knew that the girls had come from um, troubled families. And the vast majority of the children that I'd worked with in Clackamas County who were victimized had come from troubled families. So that was another factor, too. So after Jim talked to Ward Weaver, I was absolutely convinced he was the guy. And I believe, personally, that the task force thought he was the guy by then, too, because I'm drawing on my background as a prosecutor, and they have the same backgrounds or even more extensive backgrounds. They're working with a profiler, you know, so, so any conclusion that I'm reaching, I'm thinking they're probably reaching in spades. So I definitely believe that by the end of, the, end of June, they were focused on him the FBI, a couple of other Oregon agencies. So I supposedly it had about 40 members and uh, it was huge. He told Jim all of this. Um, I don't know how much you've talked to Jim, but this is absolutely amazing. Jim goes out to his house alone on a Sunday and there's no one else in the Tribune office on a Sunday. He has no backup and sh shows up and he's, there and he hasn't even got out his notebook yet and it's better to get this from Jim but this is what Jim told me and and Ward says you know I've got something to tell you this is why the police suspect me it's because my father's on death row for having killed people and I have an assault conviction blah 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 and Jim Jim's like and then that, at that point, it's off the record. But then Ward goes on the record with most of it. So Jim did all that. 
It went out on Tuesday. And so he did this cautious story um, because Ward's name had not been in the media anywhere yet. The police were aware of him, of course. They knew all of this, but they were not revealing any of it to the public. Um, so he, he did a cautious story that ran, I think, July 2nd. So Jim, Jim collected um, that background information based on what Ward had told him. And then after Jim's story came out, then everybody wanted to talk to Ward Weaver. Local television reporter Anna Song landed an interview with Weaver as part of his I'm Not Guilty media tour. July 3rd, 7 a.m. we're all set. Ward Weaver grants me his first television interview. They want to put me on their list of suspects, fine. You know, I live right here in the middle of all this mess. But Weaver takes that statement August. a step further and claims investigators are calling him their main suspect. That is what the FBI and the Oregon City Police are going around telling my family and my friends when they're questioning them about me. He admits failing the polygraph test in May, but blames that on the incompetence of investigators. He believes okay. at this time right. his phone line is tapped and says he's tired of no, being cooperative with detectives. Simple fact is they come back around and want more help from me. I'm done. I ask Weaver where he was the mornings Ashley and Miranda disappeared, reminding him the girls vanished between 7.30 and 8.30 a.m. They're not real sure. Um, no, and during that time, no, I wasn't at work. I was here. Um, getting up at 8, you know, my daughter would wake me up at 8. I'd watch her catch the bus, which comes at 8.20. Um, get in the shower. And, up, you know, it's a 12-minute drive from Clackamas, so it didn't, from here to Clackamas, if I don't hit any traffic down here at this light. Um, so, no. I was here, but uh, time frame doesn't make it anything feasible. Weaver tells me um, Ashley Pond lived at his home the previous still, summer. No, he happened? says her mother didn't want Ashley anymore and wanted him to keep her. He is also aware that Ashley and Miranda had both been sexually abused by other men. And he openly discusses Ashley's um, allegations him against him. You know, Ashley has this habit, if she gets in trouble by someone, she'll make accusations against that person. Um, and the first time that I actually had to come down on her about her mouth, um, she did just that. You know, she made accusations that I had molested her. As for Miranda... Seems like a really good kid. I mean, I've never had any problems with her here. Weaver makes no mention of Miranda's comment at the February birthday party that upset him. I ask him then you know, what like, he thinks happened to the girls. I know Ashley ran away, you know, and the fact that the FBI are throwing both of these cases, you know, into someone took them both. It's like, okay, fine, you know, I don't see it that way. And I would really not like to think that someone took Miranda, um, either girl actually, but uh, I'm, I know, you know, well, I don't have anything to do with what's going on, but my gut instinct is Ashley's off somewhere where she would rather be than home. Before I leave, I ask Ward Weaver for a tour of his home, since he claims he has nothing to hide. He begins by showing me the bedrooms at, and, and describing his daughter's where, slumber parties. You know, depending on how many girls were here, <laughs> like I said, I've had some you know, huge parties. He this says there were times he ended up sleeping room. on the couch um, because his daughter's friends yeah. took up so much space. You could not walk 
anywhere in my front room without stepping on a body. And finally, Weaver takes me through his kitchen to the backyard. I notice on the microwave a recent issue of People magazine featuring Ashley and Miranda on the cover. After showing me his storage room, Weaver casually strolls across his concrete slab. I kept tabs on them when they were here. You know, just because, you know, I'm a parent, I'm responsible because they're here. He's speaking um, again but, um, about yeah, his daughter's friends. Do do. I had no um, idea we were walking you know, like, over one of their graves. He, I don't know, has he been brought in for any kind of questioning or they're st still? Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, he's been questioned a bunch of times. He's been polygraphed. Um, but and he they failed, just, I believe. He says he failed. Oh, he's safe. Okay. He says he failed. He says he failed on every question, even like what his birth date was. So it's no good. And then he doesn't, knows, he doesn't polygraph. No, the, the police had been all over him and they'd been all over his family and they just weren't getting any traction. They had no eyewitnesses. They had no physical evidence. He, uh, I only met him once. I only talked to him for about five minutes, but Jim said he's just incredibly credible and jim has interviewed hardcore people for decades if he came across as credible to jim he came across as credible right. i have no doubt you know and jim came back um from interviewing saying he comes across as completely credible he has a job he has a car he he, he takes care of his kid he's the most responsible adult in that entire neighborhood so. Yes, except he is a child killer. Of course, and, <laughs> and, and, and a child assaulter, yes. And right, that you can't forget that. That's but see, this is what I had seen for seven years of trying cases against kids where, where boyfriends, priests, coaches, teachers, not all of them came across as credible, responsible people. Some of them came across as mom's drug-crazed boyfriend. But a lot of them came across as credible, responsible people. I, I tried one case where the defendant was the girl's father and he was a deputy sheriff. Uh, Ward has not been charged. Ward is not. Uh, he's free to go, go anywhere he wants. And it, and it appears, everyone appears uh, to, to see that he's packing up uh, and the house and he's going to move somewhere. And um, and he's free to go. Nobody's going to uh, probably tail him, see where he's going. He's not under surveillance. He doesn't have to report where he's going, right? I mean, he's not in any... I, I, think, he's under, I think he's under at least informal surveillance. Sure, but I mean... But it, he's, it, no, he's absolutely free to go, and he is go. planning to go. In fact, he's, he's telling relatives he's planning to leave the country. And the police don't have any way to stop him from doing that. And then he attacks Randy. She was helping him clean the house. They were in the bathroom, and he just flipped. He just went berserk and attacked her and, like, pushed her into the bathtub and was choking her. And she was fighting him off and, and screaming, and he was tearing her clothes off. Um, and then uh, he, he stopped. He froze. Um, and she was able to break free and run out the door. Um, you know, and, you know, I think there have been police reports of his behavior in California, 
where he attacked a woman like with a brick or something and seriously hurt her. And like right up until that moment, he had been behaving normally. And then, you know, he just cracked like that. And it changes everything. It changes everything. It gives the police a crime scene. Right. It, give, it gives them a, a glimpse of, of him as, as someone attacking and trying to kill a young woman who he knows very well. And so then they can get the search warrant for evidence relating to Randy. And they do. They immediately get that search warrant and go in and search his house. It should be pointed out that since the attack of Randy happened inside Weaver's house, the search warrant was only for the house, not the grounds. The police found no evidence that connected Weaver to the missing girls inside his house. I was in his house the day after that. I, by that point, I was pretty much driving by Ward's house every day. It's, I seriously, he, it's like 13 miles for me, um, but just... I was just going out there all the time, and I, I talked to him very briefly in July, the day, the day they did the search warrant on the other um, young men's house, and at least from mid-July on, I was out there all the time. So the day after um, the search warrant for Randy, I went over there, and I went up to the house and knocked on the door, and the door was unlocked. And... That was surprising. <laughs> and so I went in, and the police know I went in. And, uh, but they didn't I, have tape or anything? You know, they taken, no. Oh, they I were mean, done I, doing I, what they, they they're did? They're done. They have they're taken done. down the crime scene yeah. tape. Okay. So there's nothing there. There's a TV van in an industrial parking lot down across the street, but there's nothing going on at Ward's house. It was completely deserted when I got there. And so I... What I was looking for was the copy of the search warrant that they have to leave if you're searching an unoccupied um, property, you have to leave a copy of the search warrant. And so I was only going to go where I could look for that because you have to leave it in a prominent place. And so you could see there was almost no furniture in the house. You could see into the kitchen, all these brand new cleaning supplies. The whole counter is covered with brand new brand new cleaning supplies. <laughs> and, um, and then I found that the um, search warrant copy was on top of like a wood stove in the living room. It was almost the only thing in the, the living room. And I was in the process of reading it when someone knocked on the door. And that, of course, was alarming. And so I just ran as far in the house as you can, which is not very far because it's a tiny house. And I ended up in Mallory's bedroom, which is where he assaulted Randy. And um, so you could see they cut the samples out of the carpet for everything like that. So after that search, then um, af after he attacked Randy, it was, as far as I'm concerned, it's game over. Now, wait a minute. You can't leave me right there. Who, oh, who knocked okay. on the door? Okay. I think the police, but I did not know. And I... Nobody had rated their own cell phones at this time, but I had one I'd borrowed from the Tribune, and I just started frantically calling the paper. This was, this was I think, a Thursday morning. It was a weekday morning because I wanted someone to know what was going on because nobody I worked with knew, knew I was there. And nobody answered at a newspaper in the morning. It was so frustrating. 
And so finally, I, I literally crawled. I crawled out of the bedroom. I crawled across the living room, looked out the window, and there was nobody there. And so I left. And as I was getting into my car, an Oregon City police car showed up. And I mean, just like that. And, and the guy says, hi, what's going on? And I said, nothing. You know, how are you? And um, then he started following me. As I pulled out, I had to pick a direction to go, and I picked a direction, and he, he followed me, so I just went to the Oregon City Police Station and pulled into their parking lot, and then he kept going. But they, they unquestionably were watching the house or had someone watching the house. Yeah. So that's why I think not, but I don't know that for a fact. Well, and, and the, the, again, the, there, there's a very good chance, and unfortunately, Randy had to be attacked. Right. There is a good chance that he would have left town, maybe done this again somewhere else, left the country and done it somewhere else. So the only thing that that stopped the whole thing was, you know, a fresh crime. And even if even if uh, they could not later connect him to the tumor, they had him on an assault uh-huh. and rape, which, right. you know, is better than nothing. Right. Uh, but like you said, it was the it was the in, inroad. Uh, to uh, to this, because then at that point, because of what he did to his son's girlfriend, who was mm-hmm. also the mother of his child, right. you also have to get all this stuff when right. it's not married people, it's the girlfriend and the mother of his, it was his child, right. that he freaked out and went to the police. Am I right? He, uh, Fran- no, uh, uh, Francis. He, Francis did. Yes. Randy called him after she called 911. She called Francis and said, this is what happened. And f- then Francis called 911. And so the police started interviewing him and they had at least two interviews with him over the next day or two. He told them conflicting stories. Um, but the, the consistent part of it was that his dad had told him that he killed Ashley and Miranda. At that point, because he's leaving, Weaver's leaving, and he hasn't paid his last month's rent. And so on a Monday in late August, his his landlord's filed for eviction, and there's going to be an eviction hearing. And as soon as the hearing takes place, which is on a Monday, um, and he gets evicted, which he will, then the landlord is giving them permission to go in and do anything they want to the property. So there's no search and seizure issue. Ward no longer has any kind of an ownership privacy right to this property. So that was the plan. Um, but that's not what happened. They ended up getting a warrant. Um, and why they ended up getting a warrant and quickly serving the warrant, I, I can think of a couple of reasons for that. One, one is Ward confessed. Um, to uh, He made a tape. He made a tape recording um, for his daughter in which he confessed that he'd killed Ashley and Miranda. And... Law enforcement was aware of that tape. He intended for his attorney's investigator to give it to his daughter, but law enforcement was aware of that confession, although it doesn't appear in the affidavit for the search warrant. Another major reason um, for speeding things up was that people were crawling all over the property. 
It didn't take long for the public to become convinced that Weaver had killed both girls and buried one or both under the infamous concrete slab in his backyard. Picketers marched with signs day and night that shouted, dig it up, referring to the slab. An enterprising person even placed a sign on the slab that read, dig me up. And the property was no longer secure. I mean, I, I was the woman who posted the dig me up sign was there was a freelance photographer who, who was out there all the time. There was a friend of Weaver's who had some of his own possessions in the shed where Miranda's body was found. I mean, there are many people kept contaminating the scene and they couldn't wait forever. So instead of the search taking place that Monday, pursuant to an eviction, the previous Friday, they got their warrant and they started setting up very late that night. And then they did now, the search all that now, weekend. You know, we're, we're focusing on the slab and, and poor Ashley, but um, Miranda and this again. But they knew where they were going to search. I mean, it doesn't say it in the affidavit, but they set up two privacy tents. This is a huge property. This is a triple lot um, with a house and a couple of sheds and the pad. They set up these two so-called privacy tents. They set up one over the slab and they set up one at the shed. They, in my opinion, they, they absolutely knew. That the one or both, you know, something right. was and, under the slab. And I had a source who, who, who told me that they knew. My source got it backwards and, and said that Miranda was under the, the slab and Ashley was in the shed. I could see why the source would do that because the slab was poured right after Miranda disappeared. But I have no doubt they knew the two locations where the girls were. That so that's point. why your your uh, the information in that direction takes us to that Ashley was probably in the freezer uh, before she was put in, under the slab. In Miranda her, went directly into the shed, was put directly. You know, there wasn't a, a, a somewhere else for her in the meantime. That you, I I'm not sure exactly where he kept. Uh, Miranda, but Ashley, when they did the autopsy, her body was mummified. And there's a couple of things that can cause that. And one of it's prolonged exposure to extreme cold. And so my personal view is that she, Ashley was in the freezer. At some point, her body was also covered with the kind of degree, debris you'd find on the bottom of a garage floor, like cigarette butts, sunflower seeds, shells. Um, I think she was also on the floor of one of his outbuildings at some point. He said he moved her around. Like I said, this case ended with all these unanswered questions. Where did he kill the girls? How did he kill the girls? Why did he kill the girls? Especially Miranda um, was just completely left open. And, and this very much bothered Miranda's younger sister. And so the minute she turned 18, she started corresponding with him. He was, he was an inmate and trying to gain his trust. Um, and she knew him. She, she'd been at a lot of these things at the house. If she was going to go talk to him and, and get him to tell her what happened. And she did. I was in the office and I got a phone call and picked it up. And a woman comes on and says, I'm 
Mariah Gaddis. Uh, I'm the sister of uh, Miranda Gaddis. Do you, do you have her autopsy report? And I said, that's an interesting question. <laughs> and I said, well, I think I do. Uh, why do you want it? And she told me that she had gone to visit uh, Ward Weaver in prison uh, to find out what had happened to um, her sister, that uh, he had told her that um, he, had, he had killed her by strangling her, and she wanted to know if that was consistent with what the autopsy report said, uh, because she wanted to know whether she was lying, he was lying to her or not. And I said, well, uh, as far as I know, uh, the autopsy report, you know, doesn't really have a cause of death, but I, I'll make a copy and give it to you. And so I cop made copies of both of the autopsy reports and met with her and gave her the reports. And I met with her a couple different times over the years. And she talked about um, her family life at the time and things like that. And she was estranged from her mother. Uh, but yeah, she, she told me that he actually phys physically reenacted uh, in front of her how he had... Um, strangled her sister. According to Jim, Weaver closed out the visit by informing Mariah that she was, quote, going to be next, unquote. Weaver has never given an accounting of the murders. He was not required to do so at his elocution before he was sentenced to life in prison. I asked Janine Robin what her journalistic gut tells her about how the murders went down. I, I believe that Ashley went to his house voluntarily, possibly even the night before her mom says she left for school. Um, the last time I talked to the D district attorneys on this case, they, they said no. You know, both girls left for school that morning. And I could see why they would say that even if they didn't believe it, because that's, that's the set of facts to which Ward entered the pleas. But he was not charged with kidnapping either girl. And nobody saw her. Nobody heard her. Um, I think her mom didn't have a clue what was going on that morning. And um, I'm absolutely convinced she went up there. She had reestablished a relationship with him after he'd attempted to sexually assault her in um, summer of 2001. She, she told, and then she, she just got hammered. She got ostracized by everyone because the Weaver's house was the place to be. And, you know, we, Ward Weaver was cool and Ashley was not. And so according to the task force, at, at some point, she sucked it up and reestablished a relationship with the Weavers. And I think that's true. And I, I think she went up there on her own. Her, her mom and her mom's boyfriend had been fighting all that evening and, she did not have a good home life, and I think she just took herself up the street. Reasonably to assume that what he said was true, that she came across what was going on. I think that's on. entirely possible. You know, 
and then, entirely possible that he had not planned that out, that he, he had only planned to bury Ashley, who he'd already killed. And in fact, he did only bury Ashley under the concrete, and he hadn't poured the concrete yet. You know, when he, when he had Miranda's body there at the house, he still didn't have concrete, but he didn't regroup and fill two barrels. He, he went ahead with the original plan and just buried Ashley and dealt with Miranda in a different way. So, um, and, you know, you put the two together and obviously the, the, the Randy attack is just continuation of, right. of what who he is. And right. the scary part, again, is how he comes across and now again in the days of YouTube and whatever, we have this wonderful you know, chit chat walking with a reporter and coming to my right. house and even reports, like you said, that Jim reported that, come on in, I'll talk to you. Um, that's OK. And people were looking around, you know, don't come into my house. Don't bring the dog. In. All the stuff that that just uh, to be that cold, to be that in that much control, not to have the, the, the beat of. And again, like I said, uh, you and 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 Jim have probably come across, you know, uh, uh, not me. That's I don't run in those circles okay. But to be that cold to that. that You know, that's the Ted Bundy's. That's the whatever. Right. Who you just want. He's a narcissist. Nothing. Right. The hairs don't stick up on the back of your neck when you right. walk past his aura. Right. So, you know, it's not like the creepy guy with the black tooth and, you know, uh, fitting some, like I say, profiling. He he was this, you know, the guy next door had the job, you know, so he had, you know, some ex-wives who doesn't has a father in prison for murder. Well, you you know, you can't, uh, you know, sins of the father. But when I met him, it was the day they were serving this evening. They were serving the search warrant on the young man who lived by Ashley. He acted perfectly normal. What was his, what, do you get any feeling that, that he might have felt that's really delving into the psychosis that this is good in the sense that they're now, you know, they're, for whatever reason, looking elsewhere? I, I, I thought he would have a very strong reaction to, to that warrant. And he, he had to know what was going on because it was on the news and because police cars were streaming past his house. And I found out about the warrant as driving home from work. And so I just immediately drove over to his house because I wanted to see what his reaction was. And his reaction was very cool. He says, I can't talk. It was summer. The door was open. He says, you know, I, I can't talk to you. I'm watching TV with my daughter. And I could see Mallory in the house. In retrospect, I, I think maybe the search was being covered on live TV and what he was watching was, was the search. And, and he talked to his friend about it at the time and he said, this is ridiculous. Those guys are not capable of killing anyone. The most haunting thing that I will point my audience to, and I may put the link on my website as well, is... Um, the interview again was that from the same television station the interview of miranda coming off the bus oh yes she's waiting at the bus stop and uh this is after ashley had disappeared it's about 10 days two weeks two weeks after ashley had disappeared and the police are out there canvassing motorists has anybody seen this girl has anybody seen this girl and so anna song's team shows up and they stop to talk to some of the girls at the bus stop about ashley and what they think happened and they talk to miranda and that's on film it's on film and it's the most i'm sorry i'm sure there's other interviews of people 
before something horrible happens to them. Right. But in this case, a young child who is going to find end up the same fate as who they're mm-hmm. talking about mm-hmm. and being asked about who right. they're talking about. I mean, it's saying kidnapping. It, it's hard to imagine that happening to anybody. That's what she says. In closing, let me say that I usually don't make personal comments about the cases I bring you, but I will make an exception this time. There is a special place in hell for scum like Ward Weaver. Here is an individual who sexually molested two young girls, his own daughter's classmates, but that was not enough for him. He then brutally murders them. But he's not through yet. He has the gall in a TV interview to state, jokingly, that at slumber parties for the girls, you couldn't walk through the house without stepping on a body. He then guides the reporter to walk over the slab where one of the victims is buried. I want to thank Jim Redden and Janine Robin for sharing their experiences with this chilling tale. Janine is writing a book on the case due out soon. Visit her website at Janine Robin, that's J-A-N-I-N-E-R-O-B-B-E-N dot com for details. And also, I hope you'll visit the website of the podcast, which is www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. When you're there, you can click on other podcasts. You can also link to my email and leave me a comment, uh, plus or minus, what you like about the show, what you don't, and maybe some cases that you'd be interested in me looking into. In the meantime... Stay safe, and for God's sake, don't murder anyone.